Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Stefan No of The Sporting News, one of my favorite people for coaching and tactical adjustments and recording before the four game sixes that we have going on seemed like a perfect opportunity. We go into each series in detail, both what has happened so far and what could happen moving forward. This episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. We'll, of course, talk more about that later in the pod. Episode runs a little bit under an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Danny. It's always a pleasure to uh, talk to the hardest working man in the business. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And we're at a fascinating point because all four second round series are going at least six. We will find out over the next two days whether they go seven. And that means with four four kind of alive, viable series, I'm going to give you the choice of where you want to start. Uh, let's go Warriors, Lakers. I think that probably has the most interest. I'm sure it's doing well in terms of the ratings. And it's been... A very fun tactical series because sure. you have the the in-game adjustments and the between-games adjustments from Ham and from Kerr. A lot of it relating to who Anthony Davis guards because and, and like honestly how the Lakers' best players play. Yeah, it's that series has been the most fun from a tactical standpoint for sure. Like you said, I mean, there's been adjustments between pretty much every single game revolving around Anthony Davis. Um, and I don't know what they're going to do for game six, um, but I'm sure Darvin Ham will have something up his sleeve and Steve Kerr will probably change something up at halftime because that is, yeah, that's basically how every single game has gone. And it's been so funny for me. Like, I mean, I talked a lot after game four on Dunkton Prime about how Ham made in game adjustments, whereas Kerr made pre game adjustments and how that really worked but then the post game the between games adjustments for Kura basically using Andrew Wiggins more as the screener which they did not do in the second half of game four that worked pretty well got Davis back out on the four and the drive game worked very well yeah I was I was really curious why they didn't just do that um in game four why didn't they, they didn't use Wiggins more as a screener but as you said, like they did it beginning of game five, seemed to work pretty well. And um, that's the real chess, chess match here is, you know, can the Warriors figure out a way to pull Anthony Davis out of the paint? I mean, I looked at uh, pretty much all of their offensive possessions when Davis was on the floor in game five this morning. And I mean, it's such a stark difference, like the quality of looks. I, I haven't. I didn't like track the numbers or anything, but just eye test wise, like he's still just an unbelievable rim deterrent, not even like a rim protector, because I don't think he had I don't think he's had a block in like the last two games. But just the way that, you know, when the Warriors get downhill to the rim and they see him back there, they pull it, they pull the ball out. They'll pass it around, have a lot of turnovers that way, just making too many extra passes because they're really scared of challenging him when he's at the rim. They are. And that stems back a long time. You can even go past the series they played when AD was on the Pelicans and he was a great rim protector in that series. The Warriors always hear footsteps when Davis is on the floor, a little bit with LeBron too, for good reason, considering some of the history. But you do see a total sea change in the way the Warriors attack and, and how things look. And it's it's not only the aggression that they have to go after the basket, but it's also the decisions they make once they get there. Like there's this idea of like like there were there were two or three plays in games three and four where Draymond and Andrew Wiggins passed out of what would have been open layups, I think because they were convinced they weren't open. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting too. Um, specifically on Draymond, like I was actually, I was listening to 
the low post that just dropped uh, today before I started talking to you and something that Zach mentioned, which I thought was really interesting, that when they are pulling AD out and they have Draymond um, switched on to some of these smaller guys, like they're really letting Draymond cook, which it's kind of weird to see. Like we are not used to that at all. But I mean, he's taking it to smaller guys and just finishing over them. So I think that has also been real big key, especially in game five, is that aggression from Draymond and punishing those switches um, that were you were you at uh, that game? I was at game five, yes. And um, it, it was funny because earlier in the series, there was a play where Schroeder was switched on to Draymond. And I was sitting, you know, I sit next to Nate at most of the games we attend. And I'm like, they should post him up. And he's like, Draymond doesn't post guys up. And he's right. Like, you know, Nate is Nate is substantively correct here. And then they did it in game five and it worked really well. There have also been a few plays where D'Angelo Russell, who was notoriously bad in these sorts of circumstances, just like gets caught on a guy and gets put under the basket. Like Russell has been much, much better in this series than I had expected. But in that specific way, he's still suboptimal. Yeah, speaking of Russell and post-ups, I mean, on the other side of the ball, he's been <laughs> taking it to Jordan Poole every yes. single time he has that matchup. There's one post-up last night in Game 5 where, I mean, it was a really, really basic just pivot and then go right past Poole in the post. And that defense has been, I mean, we know that Jordan Poole obviously is not a good defender, but this has been like a whole other level of bad. <laughs> and uh, you've seen it like up close in person, right? I have. And it reminds me a lot of the clarifying that happened in the Cavs Warriors final series where LeBron teams are generally very good at attacking defenders they think can't do it. And Jordan Poole has fit that. And like the one of the most frustrating parts of Jordan Poole's defense is that he doesn't do the things that a flawed defender can do to make things slightly more manageable. So like, for example, scouting report stuff. So like Dennis Schroeder, talented player, but what he does best is a straight right-hand drive. Like, that's what he does. And for the first two games of the series, every single time he gets on Jordan Poole, Jordan Poole concedes the straight right-hand drive. And it's like, well, if you can't, if all you can do is maybe take one thing away, probably take away the thing they're, they're best at doing. Yeah, it's been tough to play him. I mean, Kerr only played him 10 and a half minutes in game four. Then in game five, his minutes were, I think they were like around 20 something, but still, you know, pretty low for a guy you're paying 140 million to uh, over the next four years. So uh, that was one of the things I wrote about uh, for coming into game five is they, I mean, I feel like they really need some more to pull because they've had so much success against the Lakers with Draymond and a bunch of shooters. When you can't put pool out there, I mean, it just limits their options. We've seen some of the kind of countering of putting players in positions where it's more likely for them to succeed. I think that's what's going to be coming for Jared Vanderbilt as well, where he doesn't fit great in the starting lineup because if he's not guarding Steph Curry, then they're, then he's not providing as much value and he's the Warriors are going to bend the Lakers offense because they're not really guarding him that much. And that's a, it's, it's a really interesting story. Like, I mean, you and I have been obsessed with this for years, but like which players can and cannot play in a specific series, like the reshuffling and the rejumbling that happens each each series for a given team is so much fun because like we had the Lonnie Walker game in game four and then like Poole has had a really rough series overall. And like this has been a challenging Kavan Looney series. And that's the way these things can go. Yeah, I think that's just a testament to how high level the coaching is, too. I mean, you don't see that in all series, but um, like just going back to the first round with the Lakers, right, where Rui was, uh, I mean, he was their X factor. He was killing it. And in this series, you know, Vanderbilt has been more that guy uh, to start. And now like both of them are just kind of out of their games. I think that's that's really a testament to, um, I mean, (laughs) I don't want to like slam other coaches. I think Taylor Jenkins is really good, but it's it's just like a... 
it, it really shows that game plans matter a ton when you get to this level. I think they're less important, you know, in the regular season. But uh, it's it's super super high level stuff in this series. I also think Taylor Jenkins is a good coach, but I sometimes fixate on his flaws, and one of them for me has been Memphis. Memphis is a young team that doesn't always play like a young team in terms of their like consistency and aggression and transition offense. And I think something we've seen from the Warriors this series, it's been such a hilarious shift from the King series, which was exactly the opposite is like, oh, let's make the old guys run is actually a pretty good strategy. And I didn't think Memphis deployed enough. And the Warriors had been the old team that needs to slow things down against Zach. And then now they're the team that needs to speed things up against the Lakers, make LeBron and AD either get back in transition or exploit it when they don't. Yes, they had some of their best stuff uh, Warriors did running. Like we talked about pulling AD out of the paint. And one really good way to do that is just like run before he gets down there. Sure. Like Curry, Curry had a you know 94 foot fast break. Uh, just take it to the rim that way. Uh, it worked really well. I'm curious, though, Danny, like, you know, we're talking about a lot of the stuff that's happened in the past. Like, what do you think is going to happen in game six and game seven? Assuming, you know, I think the latest news is that Anthony Davis might play. I think he will. Um, however, however, that comes to pass. It's. What I don't, what I'm unsure of is like what what's next in terms of the adjustment. So I think Gary Payton, even though the Warriors went away from it, and I think that was a mistake late in Game Four, um, he really brings some key elements in terms of being disruptive on defense. And I mean, that thought that's been a part of D'Angelo Russell had a better Game Five than Game Four, but doing that and. For the Lakers, it could be, I mean, I've been arguing they should start Schroeder for a couple games now because I think he's done the best job on Curry. So that's not just uh, in the playoffs, too. I mean, Schroeder's guarded Curry pretty well. I, I looked yes. at their regular season matchups. He he really uh, knows how to play the angles against Curry. They actually have weirdly have a lot of experience against each other because Schroeder's bounced around the league so much and like has had that assignment because Schroeder, I've always thought of him as being a little overstretched for being a starting point guard, but he has been a starting point guard a lot and the Warriors have been around a lot so sure. it is i mean intruder yeah he knows the he knows the angles well he's also really persistent and persistence can work very well against curry because the, it means that the the windows that he has an advantage are smaller and it just like anybody else that's harder to work with yeah a friend of the podcast uh seth partnow mentioned this to me that the thing that Schroeder does really well, like all these guys, all these Warriors guys with this like beautiful game stuff, just coming off so many screens, like the the reason, one of the major reasons why that works is they're pushing off on all these screens and that creates that initial separation. Yes. But what Schroeder does is he pushes these guys first and that allows him to stay connected. That's why like Clay and Steph can't get that separation. So if you if you watch Schroeder like when he's off the ball, I mean he's just like on those guys like glue and and that's the primary reason why. Another thing that Schroeder does well is that if if the other player pushes him too hard, he will go down like a sack of potatoes and sometimes he'll draw a call or two and that yep. limits the Warriors' willingness to do that push-off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's really smart, you know? Smart play by him. It is. And it, it was funny, there were those quotes from Darvin Ham between four and five and then during game five about like, Why don't te- we don't teach flopping and all that. It was like, they do have a very adept group of foul-drawing guards and I will leave it at that. Yeah, so I feel like you're uh, you're ducking my question here, Danny. Um, I am. <laughs> I, I, this series is... Con- this series has confounded me at every turn. I picked the Warriors at the beginning, and then I jumped to the Lakers, and then I jumped back, and then jumped at that. I I think the Lakers should be favorites in Game Six. 
but and I think I think they're the favorites to win the series. But I'm not convinced that either home team is has to be the heavy favorite to win six or seven because both these teams are good enough to win on the other team's house. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you know, obviously winning two games in a row, you're probably going to be an underdog. But I still kind of like the Warriors' chances just because um, they're putting so much stress on AD in particular. I just don't know if like, especially with his injury history and with this head injury that he suffered, you know, can he maintain such a high level? And you know, you hope that lebron could kind of step up too but that foot has been looking like it's it's really slowing him down a lot um so there's they're so top heavy you know that team i just feel like uh the longer this series goes the more of an advantage swings to the warriors so if, sure. if the warriors can eke out a win in game six which that's going to be the tough part I, I do have confidence that they can take it in game seven totally fair I think we can go from there to the other Western Conference series, and we don't have full reporting yet, but we just kind of, as we started recording, uh, Shams had it that DeAndre Ayton is not going to play in Game 6 due to a rib contusion, and Jamal Murray is questionable with a non-COVID illness. That obviously throws a big wrench. Chris Paul still not going to play. But one of the weird dynamics in this series is that the Suns have at times shown more burst and more life with Jock Landale. So it it definitely allows Monty Williams to be a little bit more free with his center rotation than he might have felt otherwise. Yeah, I've seen a lot of calls for Landale to just start over Aiden, which I think is, the pendulum is swinging too far there. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I wrote something on Landale, so I watched all of his, like I hyper-focused on his play and you know he's fine you know he's like a really really hard hustle guy um but i don't i don't think he's like super impactful to be totally honest as a defender like i think the um just the way that he plays defense like people can score over him pretty easily and then on offense his role is so limited so i do think that that injury that aiden injury is going to impact the suns a lot more than people think and then on the other side of the ball you know murray Murray's been pretty good, so I don't know. It kind of <laughs> sucks that uh, now that those guys are going to play. Uh, maybe the Suns will be able to run a little bit more with Landale out there. That's how they've had most of their success. So I guess that's what I'm going to be looking for in that game. Making Jokic change ends quickly can be an advantage. I mean, Jokic, he's an unbelievable player. He generally does a pretty good job there. But kind of like we were talking about with Anthony Davis in the first series, the more you make star players work in ways that might not necessarily like produce, it, it's it's kind of it's work that's both necessary but not like as. I don't know. The essential seems like the wrong word, but like it's it, like the, those sorts of like un like otherwise unnecessary efforts can really wear on on people, whether especially if they're large humans, which they are. Yeah, the other I mean, speaking of like wear and tear, the other thing that I'm going to be looking for in that game is so Kevin Durant is moving like his minutes have been pretty insane. Yes. And uh, most recent game, I mean, he like LeBron, I mean, not because of injury, just because of fatigue. But Durant just was not moving very well. I thought when he didn't have the ball, like when he did have the ball, like he could still have these bursts of energy. But just defensively as a helper uh, when he was off the ball, he looked really tired. What, and we talked about transition defense in the Lakers Warriors series. There have been different moments where each of these Suns and Nuggets have been terrible in transition defense, but it was the Suns' turn in Game 5, and they were just awful. Like, Denver was getting all sorts of looks, and there were plays where, like, Denver didn't even have the advantage in terms of numbers, and they just got an open look anyway because the Suns never rotated. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably the key to this game is going to be Devin Booker. Like, he's just going to have to continue to go crazy. Um, 
I mean, that, I just, that was, to me, the most interesting part of three and four is that Devin Booker is unbelievable. I mean, two of the better performances I've seen in the last few years in the playoffs. And yet the Suns, like, didn't, they didn't dominate. Like, they didn't crush him. And so what that means is your margin for error is scary thin. And right. now, like, with, so now they only really have two centers with Landale and and Bismack Biombo. If either of them gets into foul trouble, those guys also aren't, they aren't all-around players. And so, and also foul trouble for Kitty, foul trouble for Booker. And also, like, I think there's a lot more pressure on Monty Williams to make the decision he should have made a long time ago and not start Josh Kogi because it's so much easier to defend the Suns when he's out there. Yeah, they have a couple guys who uh, just are not getting the respect of defenses. Campaign, too. I mean, he's like traditionally an okay three point shooter. I think he's probably like 36% for his career or something, but they're not guarding him at all out there. And that just. I mean, Durant is such a tough shot maker and Booker, too, that they can score, you know, when they're drawing two. But it, the quality of their looks has been, I mean, not <laughs> not great, in my opinion. OK, I'm going to give you a question. As an analyst, as somebody who loves watching basketball, you have these four teams that we've talked about. If you could pick the Western Conference Finals, what would you want it to be? What I want it to be, uh, I guess the Nuggets, because, you know, I just love watching Jokic and um, I'll go with the Warriors. It's just All, like so it's so fun to see how ga- how teams game plan against Steph. But it's just like there's no good answer. So I love seeing coaches in a bind there. <laughs> mm-hmm. All four scenarios are, are totally worth it. And as, especially if the teams are remotely healthy, I'd be excited to see any of them. And I, I'm happy you brought up Jokic because we talked a little bit about that series. But one like one thing we haven't emphasized is just how brilliant he's been, especially recently. And I mean, Jokic. There are times that that we all take him for granted just because he's he's so special, he's so unusual. But like so far in this series, Jokic is averaging 35 points, 13.8 rebounds, 10 assists on 58% from the field. It it's incredible. Yeah, it's it's nice that people are finally getting to see this on a national level. And also, I mean, aside from his play, like uh, <laughs> he's been pretty hilarious in all of his post game interviews and his little like TNT segments. And it's good to see, uh, you know, people finally figure out that this guy has a, a great personality too. I like that he's getting the stage. And and Jokic, yeah, he is. Uh, I haven't interacted with him too much directly, but he seems he definitely seems like a like a an affable, funny guy, which which is always great. And and like to get that opportunity, and it's part of what being in the playoffs is. And it's unfortunate for kind of him and that the best run they had was in the bubble when you didn't get as much of that just because it was such a weird in like idiosyncratic environment and Jokic's defensive flaws haven't been as central in the Sun series I I think it would be a larger story in the conference finals should they get there but he's also unbelievable offensively and if you, it ends up being Nuggets Lakers again which given who leads the series is very possible like I would be happy to have a redux of that yeah, I think the thing about Jokic's defense is that it works, but their margin for error is basically zero. Yes. And they have, like, the backline guys have been unbelievable. Uh, like, literally, I cannot believe how good they are, which means that I'm questioning how sustainable that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, again, like, the next round, if they do face a team like the Warriors that has so much off-ball movement, they're, they're just going to be tested uh, so much more. So, yeah, we'll see. That's going to be super interesting. I, I really don't have a feel of, like, who would... I guess I would take Denver just because, you know, they're the one seed or whatever. But since, since, I don't think it would be I, easy. Since I know you watch this closely, do you want to talk a little bit about Denver's backline defense, what guys like Aaron Gordon are doing? 
Uh, well, I mean, the Nuggets bring two to the ball, usually. Like, they're trying to keep Jokic up high. They were dropping against Chris Paul, but now that he's out, you know, they're basically just bringing two to the ball. They have That leaves the roller open, obviously, so you got to pull someone over. And, um, yeah, I mean, just, I don't know about, like, Gordon specifically. Uh, I haven't, like, been focusing super closely on him, but all of those guys, you know, where you pull over, somebody else on the other side has to guard two. All of those have been super, super on point. And if you just screw up one tiny step, it's like, you know, four-step process, then you're screwed. You're giving up a layup or a dunk. Or, sorry, a layup or a three. And they have managed to not do that. It's also, what, have you, what have you seen about uh, Aaron Gordon's defense? In, in I think he's done well. I mean, the difficulty of trying to kind of take on a different assignment in a different moment and uh, threat assessment can be really challenging. You talked about like one guy guarding two. That That's impressive. But it's really been, as you said, a team effort. So like the people on the back line, sometimes it's Contavious Caldwell-Pope, kind of depending on where the assignments are. Oftentimes he's on Booker, so it's not there. But also the idea that that it's not even also it's the backline guys, but it's the frontline guys where it was I think that was game two. Also, Booker was tired at that point where they had Brown and KCP on the Suns two stars. And so Brown was guarding Durant and then Gordon was cleaning up everything. And like, that's a real luxury if you can pull it off to have three high level defenders, especially against a team that really has two threats, because that was after Chris Paul went down with the groin issue. And so then like you think about that, that you have three high level defenders, including one who can clean up messes, none of whom are your center. It gives you a lot of places to work. Yeah, that's interesting. I think like one of the trends in the playoffs just overall is like how important that backline is. And you see it with um, Boston, with the Sixers for sure, like there and with the Lakers, too, with like how they're trying to keep AD on the back line. Like I think any way that coaches can scheme to keep these rim protectors near the rim, whether that's, um, yeah, like with Boston, they use this kind of like roamer concept where they'll switch Horford or Rob Williams off matchups just to keep them on that baseline or you know like what you were talking about with Denver just having these guys back there that can actually cause some some problems for uh, rim attempts I mean I think that's like a a trend that we're seeing a lot of successful teams um, that's like turning the tide in a lot of these games it is and one of my other favorite developments from Suns Nuggets beyond just the overall brilliance of Devin Booker is I've gained a greater appreciation for his ability to make the the kind of two pass away so you 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 skip a step and that really frustrates defenses because they you, it changes the rotations that you have to make and so he's kind of jumping ahead and the nuggets are often conceding that pass but they're not really prepared to defend it it's not a criticism of michael mullen or his players it's just those are the killer passes as opposed to the like guys open but they're somebody's already recovering to him yeah that's a great point um Nikias Duncan actually had a great, great Twitter thread about this. And I think the key to those plays of, that you're talking about is that Booker strings the defenders along yes. in order to create passing angles. Because that's, I mean, that's a super tough pass. And what people don't realize about that pass is the timing of it is extremely important to wait until help defenders are, you know, aligned in order to create that pass. So that's something he's doing really well, not just letting go of the ball as soon as he gets two defenders, actually like waiting and manipulating the help defense to get his guys open shots. Lots more to discuss with Stefano, but first a message from FanDuel. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now, new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet does not win. 
And especially if you're an NBA fan, this is a phenomenal time with FanDuel. Whether you're interested in, you know, like the basic game stuff, like who wins and over under and the spread, but player props can be a lot of fun as well. And if you're into other sports, of course, FanDuel has great options for you as well. That's why there's no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sports book. Visit fanduel.com slash Boston to get that no sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's fanduel.com slash Boston. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 and over in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. FanDuel is offering... Online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with the Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. 1-800-9-WITH-IT. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. 1-877-770-STOP. Gambling help line ma.org or call 1-800-327-5050 for 27 support. Can visit mdgamblinghelp.org. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 1-800-522-4700 or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET, depending on which jurisdiction you are in. Just because we're talking about this series and I have Twitter up, John Gambadoro, radio personality in Phoenix, is saying that he's hearing Landry Shamit is going to start for the Suns tonight. That is really interesting. So does that mean they're going KD at the 5? No, but uh, Shamit's been pretty good, so yeah. I kind of like that decision. Broadly speaking, I think the Suns have been at their best when they've had as much spacing around Booker and Durant as they can. And that could be Monty Williams taking the right lesson from the earlier games in the series, which is going defense against the Nuggets generally doesn't work out anyway, so just go with more offense and see if you can beat them that way. <laughs> I feel like that's what the Nuggets do, too, so it's kind of yeah, funny. It is. <laughs> Yeah, and I, defense, I, right? one other player to just mention briefly, I've, I've always liked his game, but I've been very impressed with Bruce Brown in this series. I mean, he had the, the big 25 in game five, but his ability to be different roles like on ball, off ball defensively, and then be not really on ball offensively, but they don't need that. But, you know, hit enough open shots. That they're going to keep them honest, but attacking in transition, like it's it's so nice to see a player who has specific strengths and weaknesses put in a circumstance where those work for his team. Is he a free agent this summer? He has a player option. So potentially, yes. Yeah, he made himself some money, man. I mean, he's he's played great. I hope so. And that could be with Denver. Denver's finances are going to get very tricky very quickly, especially with, I haven't gone through the term sheet yet, but with the, some of the stuff on the new CBA. Um, but yeah, a player who can make a lot of a lot of teams better. And it's something that over the years, like even now in the draft process, I've been looking at more, which is I used to fixate on the like, so players who I don't think can be on ball stars. And like 
there there generally yeah there is a lot less utility for that type of player you'd rather you know if everybody could be Steph Curry or Luka Doncic or LeBron James that'd be pretty exciting but you also need to think about complementary skill sets and sometimes players who were on ball stars in college like they develop it like that's kind of something Marcus Smart has done like Marcus Smart is a much better defender now than he was at OK State but the other way to do it is to just have the building blocks for that complementary game already competing on defense having a decent shot mechanics and and effort and all that stuff sorts of things and like they're whether you start there or you finish there it's a nice set of skills to have for sure and i think that's made a big difference in a lot of these series you know like um you know just talking about the heat i mean gabe vincent and max Struess have been essential for what they're doing and on the other side uh tips played quentin grimes 48 minutes on one leg because he just couldn't afford to uh take him out and they shortened their rotation so much i think it's just a testament that you know we focus so much on the stars on the high-end players but if you have or if specifically if you don't have like some of these solid fifth or sixth man role players you're kind of screwed you are and it can be for either because you need them to step up because the stars aren't playing well, but more accurately, it's because different series are going to shake out players in one direction or the other. And so if you don't have like two or three bites of that apple, there's probably over the course of four series going to be somewhere where that player doesn't fit. And so that you need to you need to kind of either have the right players or maybe you get fortunate with the matchups, but it's a lot to ask. Yeah, and along with having the right players, I mean, I think you need to really know how to use them. I think that's what uh, Spo has done really, really well. I mean, like, Struess was a guy, the Bulls had him. They just let him go because they thought he was, like, whatever. And that was on a team that sucked, you know? <laughs> that was, like, on a roster that was totally devoid of talent. And oh, now- but... but, but- Steph, you don't. The Bulls don't need shooting. They don't need a complimentary guy who can reasonably defend different positions right. and hit a bunch of jump shots. That's not something Chicago could use at all in any of the phases they've had the last eight years. Well, I was gonna say, yeah, like now, like Struess is gonna be a free agent. I mean, he is a guy that God, like I would give him the full mid-level exception if I was the Bulls because he fits exactly what they need. It's been so bizarre, like, because I, I think back a lot to, you know, Nate and I did over-unders for, this is for the 21-22 season, and I was, like, hammering the Miami under because I didn't trust their depth. They had got, lost a lot of guys to make the other additions that they had, and just, like, they're not going to work it out. And then Vincent, Struess, Omer Yurtsevin, who has had such a bizarre season, he's going to be a restricted free agent. Like, all those guys stepped up. They had this really great year, ended up as the one seed in the East, and then this whole regular season, like, that all doesn't quite work right. And then you get into the playoffs, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is who they were beforehand. It's been so disorienting. Yeah, I think we uh, decided to talk about this series third because it's <laughs> it hasn't been super pretty. I mean, all these games have just been total grind fests, but uh, that's, that's Tibbs ball, right? It's Tibbs ball, but it's also... Um, I- I wish I remember who said this, but basically that like the Heat's superpower is making other teams look bad. You know, the idea oh, that they, they I like that, yeah. They take away what you do well. And that's especially true of a team that doesn't really have a dynamic offensive process in the half court. And when the when the King when sorry, when the Knicks have been able to run, I think things have actually looked really good. Like there was that stretch in the second quarter, which was an absolute delight, Jalen Brunson and Obi Toppin. And they yeah. of course had the huge third quarter run where Randall was doing well. But Miami, they can live in the muck and they have guys that are really good there and they have they they have stars that offensively and defensively that know what they're doing and then they have role players who can fill in the gaps and whether it's scripted or it's unscripted just kind of end up in the right places and like you're not going to trust necessarily Gabe Vincent to have seven great games but if he has 
two really good ones and then four where he's not killing you and then maybe one where he does like you can you can handle that and spo riley like the front it's the front office and the coaching staff identifying and then putting those players in the right spots other than maybe an over-reliance on Duncan Robinson in Game 5, has been really impressive. Well, I think the reason... I, I agree with all your points there. Uh, you make some good ones. I think the reason why they're leading on Duncan Robinson a lot is because, I mean, when you put yourself in the perspective of the Heat, the biggest thing they want to do is to contain Jalen Brunson, and they haven't been able to do it, even though they've basically done everything in their power to make his life as hard, hard as possible. You know, they have Gabe Vincent pressing up against him on inbounds, like, just harassing him basically for 94 feet and then when vincent does tire himself out you know they just have all these other options that they can throw at him lowry caleb martin jimmy butler um and what also what they're doing a lot of specifically with duncan robinson is they're having brunson just have to run all over the court defending robinson they're they're running this um one play half court hoops has been all over this it's a double screen Mm -hmm. brunson is the second guy guarding that action and what that means when you're the second guy is you have a lot of pressure to stop the ball jimmy butler's usually the guy that uh, has the ball in his hand so brunson has to get out there stop butler's momentum then run back and find wherever the heck robinson is on three-point line um so yeah i mean robinson you know obviously his defense sucks but i think he's done a really good job of stressing jalen brunson and then brunson is just so good that it hasn't mattered it's a great point, and again, there are. It's it's good to articulate how a player can be useful, even if their shots aren't necessarily falling, and even if in Duncan Robinson's case, he's a little bit flawed defensively. Uh, something that you did really well on video during slash after I can't remember exactly game five was the heat. You brought up that that double screen. They ran it five times in a row and got really good looks the first four times. Yeah, and I mean it was like a storybook ending because <laughs> the. The only time they really stopped it was when Quentin Grimes was on one leg and then he just ripped Jimmy Butler like the best player in the playoffs. I mean, you could not have scripted something more crazy than that. Did you do Quentin Grimes for your gem series? Uh, no, he did not make the list. But I he, love uh, Quentin Grimes. If we, if we had sure a second round, yeah. I mean, he would have made it for sure. I'm it's sure weird, you though, love like, Quentin. Like, he's, he's, like he's like basketball nerd catnip. Yeah, I mean, he, I was kind of surprised. That, like, he was pretty quiet, actually, through like the first couple games. And he's uh, he had an awesome game you know, last night. But it's been kind of like an up and down down uh playoff the second round for him shoulder contusion probably didn't help yeah sure, and, sure. and and also like there i thought he did a nice job on butler in game five but jimmy butler's a lot to deal with and and that like the heat have a lot of physically strong guys i actually like grimes better on speed in speed matchups which is weird because you like you kind of look at him and you're like yeah i don't know if that's necessarily right but he does a good job on almost everybody yeah i mean i would agree with you like uh yeah, I mean they're gonna they're gonna need him for sure. I hope that leg is okay. Like I think that probably the Knicks are in some trouble here. But uh, what what are your feelings on it? I think the Knicks are in some trouble as well. I mean the Heat it things can change really rapidly, and that will happen in the fourth series we will eventually discuss. But I think of the Heat in many ways as a better version of a similar team to the Knicks, and sometimes that's an even harder hill to get up because you can't use the styles clash to like really work in your favor. Mm-hmm. And another kind of huge part of this is like Miami for a team that has a large amount of shooters, their shooting as a team can be very inconsistent. And like they were competitive for most of game five and they were just missing good shots. And so the idea of, I, I think the heat, the, the Knicks could win any individual game of the series, including the two remaining, but I think they're the underdogs in all of them for a reason, and so I expect the Heat to win. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the shooting variants. I mean, I think that has also been kind of like an untold story of this playoffs. I think there's been like, actually, to be frank, a lot of overreactions to games where teams just got unlucky for three. And mm-hmm. I'm speaking more, I mean, about that Knicks-Heat game, but also, I mean, the Celtics did not play well. I mean, let's just, let's just state that for a fact. But also, I think that um, some of the criticism is just unwarranted because they would have looked a lot better if they just hit their threes, right? And that's kind of what they do. They shoot a lot of threes and they couldn't hit any in game five. And they were generating open ones, which they've done right. pretty consistently throughout the series. And it's a part of why, especially when doing a live broadcast, in the early portion of a game, I focus far more on the quality of shots that a team is generating rather than whether they actually go in because that's more predictive of what's going on in the future. Still, you actually absolutely have games where just they don't fall. And a similar thing has happened at times in the Warriors-Lakers series where one team looks terrible and you realize, oh, they shot 25% from three. And then the other one, which may or may not be forced by the other team, is like we've seen some wild disparities in terms of successfulness in transition offense. So like mm-hmm. there have been games where I think in there were there was a portion of of game five in Nuggets Suns where Denver had like a 200 offensive rating in transition. And there, there was <laughs> Boston has had some where they've been like below 70 in transition offensive rating. And it's like some of that is defenders being back and all the things you can do to make a difference. But part of it is like some games you just bounce the ball off your knee. And that isn't to let guys like Jalen Brown and sometimes Malcolm Brogdon off the hook because like some players make more transition mistakes than others. But when part of our job is to predict what's coming, that context is really important. And I mean, that's something you brought up, Seth, before, like the play better adjustment, but also just like the various regressions to the mean that can happen. And that's why, you know, even in the macro sense, you look at, are they generating good shots? Are they like, and that's what part of what's always driven me crazy about Philly's defense and their starting five is like, if you make them make multiple reads, do multiple efforts, you're going to get a good look. You can't guarantee that's going to go in, but you're going to get something. Yeah, I want to ask you a question, Danny, just going back to the shooting variance thing for a second. Um, you know, the specifically Al Horford was just getting crushed on Celtics Twitter. I hope I hope you're not on the Celtics Twitter streets. I hope you're uh, limiting your social media. But um, yeah, like Embiid was making a ton of shots in that game five. But they were like, you know, mid-range jumpers. That's kind of... <laughs> I feel like uh, you you have to live with those a little bit, even if he's super hot on them. I mean, what was your opinion? Do you think that the Celtics need to change up their game plan? Do you think that they could have played up more on Embiid? Or do you think that, uh, you know, you just have to live? If, if Embiid's going to kill you with elbow jumpers, then you're probably going to lose the game. I'm between the two, but closer to you. I think that you, you don't want to concede like a wide open in rhythm jumper there because sure. Joel has gotten really comfortable. And like I thought Robert Williams was actually worse on that than Horford was, where he was, you know, playing, he was playing too deep of a drop. And so they're just like, if you give Joel the like walk in free throw on jumper, he's going to make it. And like, I actually like making Embiid a driver in that sense because not, not be, he's, he's good at it, but he also can be a little bit loose with his handle and with his passing sometimes in those circumstances like you you put enough heat so that he can that he that he chooses to dribble instead of shoot and then you kind of pressure him enough that he doesn't get quite to his spots also in those circumstances like just being practical like he's going to hit the floor more often you're going to get transition looks the other way like i like 
him put forcing him to put on the floor a little bit more often. But I also sense. I also don't see those shots as a failure. So it's not a five alarm fire. Stephen Curry is you know, going under a Stephen Curry three pointer. Like it's not something like that. But I like making star players work and extra dribbles, extra decisions, and especially somebody like Embiid who doesn't always do those things perfectly. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. I mean, I do think the Celtics could have defended it a little bit better. But like you said, I mean, criticism that, you know, their defense was horrendous and they need to, you know, I see so many comments of just like, get rid of drop defense. It sucks and never works. And I think that's totally wrong. You know, I think there is definitely cases where you do need to drop against certain combinations and certain teams. Um, yeah, but I, I, uh, I, I concede your point there. I'm looking at the the splits from from game five and Boston had a so in game five, Philly had a 154. This is clean the glass um, offensive rating and transition in Boston's was a 92 three. Like wow. that is a pretty stark difference. So Boston ran more, but got less from it. And then the other weird part, which was and this you could say to a degree was a failure of the Celtics defense. Not they're not bad defenders. It's not like their scheme is trash or anything necessarily. But Philly had a well above average first shot half court offense rating too like they're 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 able to get to their spots better than i expected and i think that's i think that's all james harden running that pick and roll uh, that's been a huge part of it i mean and especially because if memory serves game five wasn't a great maxi performance so like i could be wrong i sometimes the games in series run together so well that (laughs) i know it was like oh this player had a big game four but no it was actually game five or game three it's like oh you know yeah maxi did have a pretty good game five he had uh 30 points in that okay okay so that was game four maybe that he wasn't yeah and um so that's like that's something also to watch like the the sixers and i I keep on thinking it's going to be more problem. It's so funny. Like I picked the Celtics at five. I was very aggressive about it. And like, I thought like, the, oh, the Sixers aren't going to be able to defend them. And then game one happened. And then like, in some ways, even more that game four happened where like the Celtics played well for about 10 minutes and nearly won the game, but they didn't. And now they're down three, two. So I got to ask you another question here, Danny. Sure. You know, there's so, so much Doc slander. I'm guilty of it as well. <laughs> and he could lose the next, you know, two games and then we all make fun of him again. But do we need to give him some credit? Because I feel like, like you, um, you know, I thought the Celtics were not going to have too much trouble here. Uh, that was definitely the consensus opinion. So for Philly, especially to steal game one without Embiid to be in this position, I think Doc has actually done like a lot of really good things from a game plan perspective and things also that I thought he should not do that ended up working really well. Like, for instance, playing P.J. Tucker a lot, figuring out a way to keep P.J. Tucker on the floor. I thought he should just completely cut Tucker's minutes. But he's given them so much on defense. He's gotten him to be slightly less reluctant of a shooter. Um, so I, I think we do need to, you know, when we do criticize these guys, when they do something good, I think we do need to kind of give Doc his flowers a little bit. What say you? I wholeheartedly agree. And it's sometimes hard. Like, I, I at times, I've been more frustrated with the Celtics and Missoula for not living up to my expectations. But Doc deserves a lot of credit for that. And as you mentioned, their their process at times in, in the half court, like particularly in game five, like they were getting Embiid shots in rhythm. They, I mean, part of it was the Celtics icing all of these left side coverages so Harden can get those left-handed passes, which he's so good at. I mean, he can yeah. pass well with his right, but he's so good going to his left. Yeah, they got and, him going right. And and so like there are elements there that Boston can tighten up. But yeah, I mean, they've, they've done a better job, not only kind of getting good shots in the half court, that was of course a huge part of the story of game five, but not like trying different stuff on defense, stuff that I didn't necessarily think was going to work. Like they've dabbled, they've, they've done some switching, they've done some zone. And while 
I didn't expect those things to stymie Boston the way that they have at times. They have. And like, and, and so, yeah, I definitely believe Doc deserves his flowers. And hopefully for his sake, he can get he can get a win in one of these games to go to the conference finals. I feel like when the Sixers go zone, it's like a trap, you know, like it's it's tricking Boston into going into their very worst habits where they don't move the ball, where they're just like trying to figure out what to do. I mean, they're so dynamic and so good when they're moving quickly, you know, making quick decisions. And that's how you beat a zone. Like if you just sit there, you know, staring down your reads, like that's not, <laughs> it's not going to work against the zone. And the other thing, I mean, you mentioned the switching. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the switching has had a huge impact on Jason Tatum. He did have 36 points in game five, but I mean, he hasn't shot the ball super well. I think they've, yeah, they've really tried to take away like a lot of the things he's comfortable with so again you know it's props to doc on that stuff where do you see Sixers celtics going from here yeah you know i asked us uh, this in my work slack like what do you have less faith in doc rivers or the celtics and it's pretty pretty tough right now i love the celtics you know like i thought they they were my finals pick like preseason start of the postseason but they've been such an up and down team um so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that if they play certainly like at an average level, they should still be able to take this. It's just like they've they've haven't been able to hit that average, even that average button consistently. What's been so frustrating for me with Boston, I, I mentioned the I mentioned part of this when we were talking about the series in the early part was like the idea of making Philly make multiple efforts and reads defensively. And like the idea that when Boston is aggressive and assertive, not only in transition, but in their half court offense, they're getting good stuff pretty consistently. There's no yeah. guarantee that Al Horford is going to go four for seven, zero for seven. That's just the way three point variance works. Like you, you, but you can get good stuff. And the way I would describe it is that Boston so I'll use a quote from uh, Clay Thompson said this after. So it was after the Warriors won the title in 15, um, Kerr's first year. He talked about how the team was still calibrating what a good and bad shot was. And that they were like, mm. basically that they they had become in the, and he wasn't criticizing Mark Jackson for this at all. He was like, I think it was more himself in the process. It's like they had become very, and it's so, it's it's kind of in a little bit, it's it's more coincidental than ironic, but like with what Clay's doing right now in this Lakers series. But the idea that they thought bad shots were better than they were. And I think the Celtics are more confident in bad process than they should be. But there's a part of me that wants to just trash Joe Missoula for it because it's like like in the in the ends of games or the beginning of game four and all stuff like the Celtics, they have a nasty habit of getting in their own way and like kneecapping themselves offensively, which is extremely frustrating and good and bad teams do it all the time. But there's like I then I think back and I'm like, I thought Ime Udoka was a good coach. They had some of these same problems with him. I thought Brad Stevens was a good coach. They had some of these same problems with him. So it could be that it's more of a Brown Tatum smart thing. It could be that it's that it is like that none of these like how do how do you reach these guys? What what's going on there? And it will be notable if it ends up being that that is contributes to a downfall, whether that's this round or in the future, of that this is the third voice in the room that hasn't really solved that problem. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, hype up my story here. I wrote a little profile on Missoula when then the two games that he was playing the Hawks. I just really closely studied. I went to both of those games. Um, and the thing I noticed about him is he empowers his players a ton. Mm-hmm. Like during timeouts, he barely talks to them. 
they're just huddled together and they're figuring stuff out. And I can work really well, you know, but also you have this problem where their starting five is super, super intelligent and they all have great ideas. But when you have five different ideas, like that can become kind of a problem, right? So I do think that they suffer sometimes from, and, you know, I'm definitely not the first person to say this. A lot of people have said this where, you know, Tatum has his own thing that he wants to do. Brown has his own thing that he wants to do. Smart has his own thing. And, you know, ideally, that's where you want a coach to be like, listen, guys, like, this is what we're going to do. But I think that, you know, it's it's worked well when they're just really hopping, when they're really moving and they're all on the same page. But when they do stagnate and they just slow things down to a crawl, I mean, it's such a tough watch. And I, I think that's a big reason why. For sure. And it it's so fun to see different approaches work and and not work in, in, in moments in time. And I mean, I've been thinking about, you know, like now that Jalen Brown is super max eligible, like how those negotiations are going to go. Because like, I mean, I at times get really frustrated with him being typically an active part of the offense in the first quarter and then deactivating for sections of the second, third and fourth. And I don't know whether that's Jalen. I don't know whether that's Missoula, what, what, where that goes, but it's like, you keep like I, there are a few teams that every year where I'm just like, why aren't you better than this? And sometimes it works <laughs> out well. Like an ultimate one for me with that was the Milwaukee Bucks the year before Budenholzer took over. It's like, why aren't you better than this? And the answer was, oh, because Jason Kidd was terrible. But it can be a lot of different things. That was me with the Sixers for like the past four years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I did have them as my finals pick. Uh, pre- well, when was that? Actually, I think I have the Celtics, but I had the Sixers conference finals pick. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, so I, I don't think you gave your pick for this series. Who do you think is going to win it? I, I still want to say Boston. I'm just, yeah. I'm not ready. I'll, I'll quit them when they set me on fire, but <laughs> they haven't, they haven't done that yet. They've just put all the kindling around my body and they yeah, have do it. Ma- and they're holding the match <laughs> in their hands, but it, it has not yet touched the, it has not yet touched the wood. So I'll still, I'll stay with them for now. I think Horford is definitely going to play better. I mean, you mentioned like 0 for 7 from 3. Like, I don't really think you can fault him for that. Like, they were fine shots. Sometimes you're just going to miss. I've seen so much Horford slander, which is crazy to me because he's been so, so good throughout this whole playoffs. I mean, he's, he's just allowing them to play multiple different styles on defense. He's, you know, driving closeouts. He's just such a dynamic big man that other teams would love to have. So I think we are in store for an Al Horford bounce back game. I'm extremely excited for it. Um, anything else that you feel we should discuss? Any Anything we haven't trod? Uh, no, I just would like to tell people that I am writing about a lot of these games day after. And uh, I've been doing more of these uh, TikToks where I try to keep them under a minute long. You know, I know people have limited time, uh, just like diving into more of like the little, actually I've been focusing mostly on adjustments, which I think is kind of fun. So sure. people do want to see that. Uh, same as my Twitter handle, same as my YouTube, same as my Reddit u- username. It's at Stefano, S-T-E-P-H-N-O-H, so you can follow all the stuff I'm doing there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Danny. Thanks again to Stefano for taking the time to come on. You can... Read his excellent work at The Sporting News. Also, a great follow on Twitter at Steph No, S-T-E-P-H-N-O-H. Love having him on. And if you follow him on Twitter, he also has a link tree, which can go to all of the great work that he's doing. And part of it for Twitter is that he does such great video stuff. I retweeted out the video that he did on the 
Heat running the same play five times in a row against the Knicks, which we, of course, talked about on the pod as well. Love having him on. And if you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is particularly great for Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. So whatever podcast player you use, you can put in there. You can also help other people find the show through social media, through word of mouth. Really do appreciate that. But the single most important thing you can do for Real GM Radio and any other show that has them is to check out our sponsors. And for us, that is FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston. And you get that no sweat first bet for up to $1,000, which is very cool. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, going really strong with Nate. And as the playoff games per day lighten up, we will get into everything else. We've already started our free agency previews, done three of the five positions, but we will also do off-season previews for all 30 teams and draft work. I've already started my my draft work and next week's pod, as of right now, will relate to that as well, though it's not going to be as much on my analysis as much as it is the impact of the lottery. That is my plan for next week. We'll see if that comes to fruition. I also should have some written work at The Athletic um, in the in the, in the the soonish range. I've been consulting on other people's work a lot this week, so I haven't had as much time to do my own writing, but that should be coming along soon enough. And I forgot to mention this in the Nate kind of Nate and I section, but uh, we're also doing playback very regularly where we're calling games live and you can watch it. It's very cool tech. Uh, so you can check that out. Um, we tweet out the links pretty regularly and we're doing games most days that we're not at something in person, not every day, but most of them um, and really do enjoy that process. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That's an absolute promise. I do not promise to respond, though I try to. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.